I've got a question for you. Have you ever been on the highest peak of spiritual victory only to plummet to the deep valley? You know, kind of like you just had this wonderful spiritual victory answer to prayer. You're standing on the mountaintop, and all of a sudden, it's like a trap door swings open. Down you go. Well, that's what's going to happen to the prophet Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19, now we're not going to see any scripture up there because we have so much ground to cover. I'm just going to read you a few excerpts, then we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 19. I'll be speaking from uh, the uh, New International Version. So 1 Kings chapter 17, I'm just going to read the first verse, and then I'll go back through these. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the, Lord of God, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's because of their idolatry. Now what I'll do is fill in the gaps as we move on. I want to move over to chapter 19 because that's where I'm going to spend most of my time. Chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, if it ever be so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life as one of them. In other words, you're a dead man. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat underneath it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there was by his head some bread baked over hot coals with a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back to the second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, turned down, uh, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper or a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? What I want to do this morning is I want to spend, first of all, some time in chapters 17 and 18 looking at Elijah's deeds. And that's going to take us to the mountaintop, to his victory. And then I want to spend some time in chapter 19 because in chapter 19, he goes into the valley, and we have more lessons in the valley than we do in the mountaintop. We get more lessons in the low places than in the high places. 
But first, let's go ahead and give you a little bit of a background that kind of ties in what Pastor Brad spoke on last week. By 931 B.C., Israel had divided into two nations. Israel to the north, ten tribes. Judah to the south, two tribes. Our story takes place in the northern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom was rife with idolatry and just bad kings. Their first king, Jeroboam, was a bad king. So was his son, and his son's son, and his son's son's son. And just when we didn't think it would get any worse, along comes King Ahab. He was the vile human toad who squatted on the throne of the kingdom. He's going to push them deeper into idolatry. He had an arranged marriage to create a treaty with a pagan country, Phoenicia. I want you to meet Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. She was infinitely more daring and risky than he was. She's a devout worshiper of Baal. He's the weather god, the god of the crops. She also worshiped Asheroth, the goddess of love and sex. She hated anybody who spoke against her false gods, and she murdered anybody who refused to worship them. She was the beautiful, murderous viper coiled on the throne of the kingdom, striking, killing God's prophets, striking, tearing down God's altars, striking, building up her own pagan altars. Dark times. Into this absolute mess, God sends the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah is considered one of the greatest of Israel's prophets, right up there with Moses. In fact, get into your New Testament, he's at the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses, Jesus, and it's going to be Elijah. So now that we've introduced ourselves to our three main characters, what I want to do is get into the first act of our story, Elijah, the fearless leader, and that's going to take place in chapters 17 and 18. Elijah, the fearless leader. Elijah just appears on the scene. He has no genealogy, no background, Without warning, he just appears. And we know very little about him. If you look in your text in chapter 17, he's called Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. Now, scholars don't really know where that's at, but they think it's the mountain regions of Gilead. That tells us a little bit about him. He would have been isolated, probably a stern man who lived off the land, uh, probably a crude man. Elijah's name means... My God is Yahweh. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8, describes him as a hairy man. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but a hairy man. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, is modeled after him. And, and what did he do? He lived in the wilderness. The guy's eating bugs. And that's a good description of Elijah. Now, some of the commentaries that we're using, including the book that we're using, describe him as an ordinary man. I don't see him as an ordinary man. I see him as an eccentric man, a weirdo. He's not the kind of guy that you're going to look at and say, God's going to use this guy. He's very unlikely as a servant of God. He doesn't remind me of David or Samson. He kind of reminds me of Vincent Damon Fernier. Who's he? 
Well, you might know him by his stage name, Alice Cooper. Now, don't judge. Hear me out on this. <laughs> Hear me out on this one. Did you know that Vincent is the son of a Pentecostal pastor? And that at a very early age, he trusted Christ as Savior and then fell away, as did his wife of 45 years, Cheryl. In 1980, they had reached rock bottom with drug and alcohol addiction, and they knew that if they didn't change their life, they were going to die. So together, they prayed and returned to their Christian faith, and they have been clean and sober for 41 years and outspoken on Jesus Christ. Now, you got to put his appearance and the stage act aside. That's between him and God, not between any of us. Okay? Together, they started Solid Rock Ministries that reaches out to young, runaway, drug, alcohol abusers, prostitutes, and tells them of Jesus Christ, brings them in into a faith-based ministry. Over the years, hundreds, if not thousands, of kids have come to Christ. Why? Because these two unlikely people served Christ like Elijah. And that fills me up with hope because God uses all kinds of personalities. If he can use them, he can use me. He can use you. Now, Elijah is more known for his deeds than anything he says. There's no recorded visions there is no recorded um, oracles. He's noted for his deeds. So what I want to do is work my way from 17 to 18. Just kind of follow along. If you've got your Bible, look in there. We want to look very quickly at Elijah's deeds. In chapter 17, right away, he confronts King Ahab with his idolatry. And he tells them, hey, it's not going to rain. In fact, this drought is going to last three years because I prayed for it. And not only that, it's not going to rain again until I pray that it will rain. And the God whisks him away into witness protection. <laughs> Far away from Jezebel because she's going to come looking for him. And he puts him deep within what's called the Kareth Ravine, where ravens bring him food, where there's a brook of water to drink from. In a few months, that water is going to dry up. So God directs him in chapter 17 to the land of Zarephath. It's a pagan land where a pagan widow and her son are going to care for him. They're going to get an endless supply of food from God. Sometime later, the widow's son is going to get very sick and he's going to die. And Elijah prays for him. And God revives him. And all throughout this narrative, we see it is the hand of God that is providing. The hand of God who is in charge. The hand of God who directs. After about three years, the word of God is going to come to Elijah. That's God's command. He's going to say, hey, I want you to go. This is in chapter 18. I want you to go back and confront King Ahab. So Elijah does that. And he goes up to Ahab. And he issues a challenge. He says, Ahab, I want you, the 450 prophets of Baal, uh, Jezebel, and I want uh, all of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. And he's going to issue a challenge. I'm going to set up an altar. The prophets of Baal are going to set up an altar. We're going to each put our own sacrifice on that altar. 
and we're going to pray. And whatever God sends fire down, that's the God we're going to, fi- we're going to follow. If Baal answers, we'll follow him. If Yahweh answers, we'll follow him. So he issues this challenge, and he allows the prophets of Baal to go first. So they get their sacrifice, they put it out on the, on, on the altar, and they start praying for Baal to answer their prayer. Nothing happens. So they begin to dance around and work themselves into a frenzy, and they shout a little bit louder. No response. Finally, they take their knives and they take their spears. There's 450 of them. They begin to cut themselves. The whole idea there is they're trying to get sympathy from their God. Silence. Complete silence. And this goes on to the evening. Finally, the scene shifts. The camera angle changes. And the prophet of God steps forward. He begins to fix Israel's altar. And I love his calmness here when you read this. He is so calm. He's not anything like these prophets. He just gets everything set up, and then he asks them to pour water on there. Three times they drench, they, they drench the sacrifice with water, with water so that it's something that man could not do. Only God can perform this miracle. And then he approaches the altar, and he prays once. And God breathes fire down from heaven, consuming everything, including all the water. The prophets of Baal, they're seized and killed. And then God directs Elijah to the top of Mount Carmel and to scan the horizon and to pray seven times for rain. And God sends a deluge. Total victory. The prophets of Baal, they're driven out. Everything's good. Or is it? Because from chapter 18, we're going to get into chapter 19, where Elijah takes a deep fall. But before that, I want to ask you a question. What was the source of Elijah's power? Is it still available to us today? I, I think it is. I, th- I think we see the. I think we're going to see the answers in our in our text. It is absolutely available to us today. He got his power from the Holy Spirit, and so we want to ask the question: How did he harness his power? Well, let's kind of look at it. He said first of all, Elijah had the knowledge of God. I'm going to go through these very quickly. He had the knowledge of God. He tells us in uh, in chapter one, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Uh, said to Ahab, as the Lord lives, whom I serve. Now, underline that word, whom I serve. Uh, in the original Hebrew there, the idea there is before whom I stand. It's before whom I stand. So Elijah views himself as knowing God and standing in his presence. He cultivated the habitual presence of God in his life. We do the same thing the same way that he did, through the word of God and through praying. The second way is through his fervent prayer. All throughout these verses, all throughout these chapters, you're going to see that Elijah spends time in prayer, praying to God. He grabbed a hold of God and would not let go. May I suggest that his prayers were kingdom prayers? Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is he didn't come to God 
with a wish list first. He came with God first, gave God the adoration, gave God the glory, and then gave his clear, clear supplication. His fervent praying, then his humility, or he was humble. As you read through this, you're going to see that Elijah viewed himself simply as a servant. All of his power came from God, not from him. And in his humility, you're going to see twice that he hides his face from God. His humility. And this leads finally to his obedience. As you read throughout the scripture, particularly verse 5, so Elijah did what the Lord told him. Every time the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah simply obeyed. He received power as he stepped out in obedience. So these are, these are four ways that we still harness this power today. But isn't it striking that despite all this power that he got from God, Elijah still fell because he's a man of like passions as us. So from Act 1, Elijah the fearless leader, we move to Act 2, Elijah the fearful deserter. I think it says fearless deserter, but it's fearful deserter. Elijah, the, fear, the, the, fear, the fearful deserter. Do you notice how quickly this happens? It happens fast. I want to know how success goes to failure so quick. Well, I think we get our first clue in chapter 19, if you'll turn there. We're in chapter 19 now. If you turn to chapter 19, we get our first clue as to why Elijah deserted. Now Ahab told Jezebel, well, she wasn't up on the mountain. She, uh, she stayed away. Now Elijah told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. You see the problem there? Who did? Elijah didn't do it. God did it. Isn't it just like man? to take what God does and give man the credit? And the, the, this vile human toad, he's the king of Israel. He's supposed to follow God. He couldn't even give God the credit and try to save his pagan wife. Hey, honey, I was up on that mountaintop. Baal didn't answer. He, he was a no-show. The Lord of God of Israel, he answered. That's the one we need to follow. No. What does he do? He lies to Jezebel and points his finger to Elijah. And Jezebel is seething. And she sends Elijah a message. You're a dead man. And so Elijah, who demonstrated his bravery in the midst of hundreds of prophets with uh, knives and spears, demonstrates his cowardice in the midst of one woman with a threat. How does this happen? How does he fall so quickly? Well, very simply, fear replaced faith. And what Elijah does is he turns around and he flees. He races deep into the wilderness, leaves the entire scene, and he's running, and he's racing, he's sprinting until he finally falls underneath a broom brush 
a broom bush or either a juniper tree. They mean the same thing. Exhausted, fearful, and hungry. He cries out, Lord, I've had enough. Kill me now. Whoa. Wow. You know, I've got to be very truthful with you. I cannot relate to the fire coming down from heaven or to all the miracles because there is zero chance I'm going to see that in my lifetime. But, Lord, I've had enough. I can relate to that. Can't you? Yeah. Don't you just love how real and honest he is? Lord, kill me now. He's afraid. I can identify with that. Well, how did he get afraid so fast? I think our text suggests several reasons, if you'll follow along with me. I think, first of all, the big thing is you look down in chapter 19, verse 3, is Elijah lost focus. Elijah lost focus. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, if you look at the margin of your Bible, it probably says, or Elijah saw. That's what it actually says in Hebrew. It would read this way, Elijah saw and ran for his life. Well, what did Elijah see? Well, he saw Jezebel. He saw her, and he ran. And what happened is Elijah's focus had shifted. He is no longer looking upward, but he's looking outward. And he sees God through his circumstances, rather his circumstances through God, and all he sees is an angry woman. Instead of walking by faith, he walks by sight. He looked outward. Secondly, because he looked outward, he begins to shift his focus inward, inward to himself. Scroll down to verse, uh, verse 9. Verse 9. He's looking inward. The word of the Lord came. Now, right here, he's hiding in a cave. He's left, he's gone, he's hiding in a dark cave. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, this is something that I love. Because here's Elijah. He's alone in this cave. It's dark. God knows where he's at. God knows everything. He sees everything. But God still takes the initiative to interact with him, to reach down. Isn't the, the, the grace of God is always marvelous. God takes the initiative. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, Elijah's answer is going to be a threefold I. I, I, I. And the I here is emphatic. What that means is it's placed in the front of the sentence so that we get the idea that he's looking at himself. Elijah replied, verse 10, I have been very zealous, read it like this, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I, even I, am the only one left. And now they want to kill me too. You see what's going on here? Elijah's having himself a little pity party. Yeah, imagine that. God's mighty warrior seized by private pouts. And he has this, this pity party. And um, when we have a pity party, there's a couple things that happen. First of all, we get filled with pride and we begin to look into ourselves 
and give ourselves more credit than we deserve. You ever do that? I'm the only one who does the work. I'm the only one who gets it. I'm the only one who takes the ministry seriously. That's just what he's doing. He's looking inward to himself. When we do that, we take our eye off of God. We look into ourselves and we fail. So he looked outward. He looked inward. There's one more thing I think he does is he tries to dictate to God how he's going to answer prayer. False expectations. I seriously believe back in chapter 18 when God sent fire down from heaven, the prophets of Baal are killed. He sends the deluge in the rain. Elijah thought it was all over. Complete victory. We've won. He was shocked, shocked to see Jezebel still alive. He expected her dead. Have you ever prayed to God? I'm guilty of this. All the while dictating in your head how he should, could, or would answer your prayer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. we got to be real careful with that because what happens is that will lead us right into despair because we have false expectations. God works all things out for the good of the believer. He knows what he's doing, and he works in unexpected ways. Now, this is what Elijah did to cause him to fall. How does God respond? How does he respond? Does he scold Elijah? No. Does he answer Elijah's prayer and kill him? No. Does he get angry and say, suck it up, buttercup? We got a job to do. Just go out and do it. No. How does, he, how do, how does God respond? He responds this way, graciously and tenderly. Graciously and tenderly. Before I look at God's responses, I want to give you an observation. When Elijah was under that bush, he wore his emotions on his sleeves, didn't he? Hey, I'm done. I'm done with it all. Kill me now. Yeah. Where else have we seen that? We saw it a couple weeks ago. Naomi in the book of Ruth. Remember that? Oh, she's returning to her hometown of Bethlehem. Her husband is dead. Her two sons have died. And what does she say? The Lord's hand has turned against me. Don't call me Naomi call me Merah, because the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. And then she says this, God has dealt with me treacherously. Like Elijah, she wears her emotions on her sleeves, and I love that. Have you ever sat in silence? Things aren't going very well, and we look up, and we kind of yell at God. We say, why didn't you answer my prayer? Why am I going through this? I can't make any sense of this. Where were you? And then when that happens, we begin to feel guilty because, man, I'm, I'm not living by faith. I want you to understand something. It's okay. It's okay. In fact, I think God delights that we lay our emotions bare to him. We see that in the Psalms, don't we? So don't be afraid to tell God how you really feel because God will do for you what he does for Elijah. Let's look very quickly how magnificent our God is, what he does for Elijah. First of all, he refreshes him. We're going to see that in verses 5 through 8. He refreshes him. Simple, simple provision. He gives him sleep. He gives him food. I think one of the real reasons Elijah collapsed 
is because he was spiritually, mentally, and physically exhausted. He hadn't taken time to take care of his body. So what does God give him? A nap and a snack. Yeah, a nap and a snack. And there's a principle here. We don't burn out for Jesus. We don't burn out for work. God cares for our bodies as well as our souls, and so should we. So God refreshes Elijah, and after he refreshes Elijah, we're going to see beginning in verse 9 all the way down to verse, uh, thir- uh, down to verse 13, he reveals himself to Elijah. Refreshes, he reveals himself. After Elijah is refreshed, God sends him on a 40-day journey. Look where he ends up. Look at our text. He ends up at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the wilderness, where it all began for Israel centuries earlier, where where God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, where the children of Israel gathered in front of that mountain, where God's presence descended on the mountain in a cloud, where Moses spent 40 days with God. Why here? Our answer, new beginnings. God is going to take Elijah and give him a new beginning, and the wilderness always represents new beginnings, a new beginning. Look at verse 15. Look look, look where God, uh, uh, verse 11, excuse me, Look where God tells, tells uh, Elijah to stand. He goes, go stand in the mountain in the presence of, it's actually the cave, in the mountain of the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. He has him stand in the exact same spot that Moses stood way back in Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. I don't know if you remember that story. We don't have time to turn to it. But Elijah, but Moses has been up talking to God for 40 days. He goes, you know, I want to see your face. God says, No, you can't see my face. If you see my face, you're going to die. So God says, I'll do the next best thing. I'm going to put you in this cave. I'm going to put you in this cleft, and I'm going to pass by. You're going to see my backside, and my hand is going to shield you to keep you from dying. Elijah stands in that exact same spot, waiting. God is coming. First, a wind, but God isn't in the wind. Second, in the earthquake, God is not in the earthquake. Third, in the fire, God isn't in the fire. Now understand, these are spectacular ways that God revealed himself to Israel in the Old Testament, usually in times of judgment, usually in in, in times of giving the law. Where is God? How does he reveal himself? The still small voice, the quiet voice. You see, Elijah puts that cloak over his face. He's in the presence of God. He hides himself, was looking for God in all the wrong places, in the spectacular. But you know, sometimes God isn't in the spectacular. He loves to walk softly, gently, unperceived in the background. He works in unexpected ways. If not in the wind, then in the tragedy. If not in the earthquake, yet in the heartache. If not in the fire, yet in lonely tears. If not in the thunder, then in the still, small voice. Are we listening? 
after God reveals himself, he does one more thing. He restores and he resets Elijah. He tells him, verse 19, go back to where you came. A new beginning. Go back. Go back. Finish the job I gave you to do. Now, where else do we see that? John chapter 21. Jesus restoring Peter. Remember, Peter fell, denied Christ three times, hides in his house, decides to go fishing. Who shows up on the shore? Jesus. They're out in the boat. Jesus is starting that charcoal fire. Smells wonderful. He starts cooking. He says, hey, fellas, fellas, let's have breakfast, shall we? And then to Peter, let's have a chat. And he restores Peter the same way he restored Elijah, the same way he restores us. Why? Because with God, with Jesus, my failure is never final. So Elijah, who in Act 1 was the fearless leader, who in Act 2 fell to Elijah, the fearful deserter, is in Act 3 restored to Elijah, our faithful example. And with this we close. Just a few words on this. Elijah was fully restored by God despite his fall, a new beginning, to do the work that God had given him to do. And I hope you'll go home and read the rest of the story because it's amazing. Maybe we can finish it sometime in another message. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord Jesus Christ is the God of second chances, the God of third chances, the Lord of restoration, new beginnings? You see, for most of us, for most Christians, our Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And how gracious is Jesus that he takes our hand and along the way he refreshes us. He reveals himself to us. Then he restores and resets us to do the work he called us to do and reach out to our community for Christ. Why? He's the God of new beginnings. Do you need one today? Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We, we, we thank you that you're the God who does these things for us. We just pray that anybody here needs a new beginning or even the first beginning of knowing Christ, that you will work in their hearts. Thank you again in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jack, for that powerful message. How was your hearing this morning? How was your hearing this morning? You know, um, I, as I sat back and I listened to Jack again for the second message, you know, a lot of the stuff that Jack talked about, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might as well have been talking about the Lord of the Rings or some crazy place. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it can feel like that. But there's, there's four things I want you to think about this morning as you walk away and where do you find yourself? You know, the first part of the story, Jack talked about the power and the presence of God. And some of you are here this morning, you're like, I have never felt the power of God. I have never felt the presence of God. And he mentioned four things there. He mentioned a lack of knowledge of God, a lack of fervent prayer, a lack of humility, and obedience. Like some of you are like, oh yeah, I know the Bible like crazy. 
There's no prayer communication in your life. There's no obedience in your life. Like, oh, oh yeah, I've never felt the power or the presence of God because I'm not going to be obedient. I want to know about you, God, but I surely don't want to do what you ask me to do. I don't really trust that you know what's best for my life. Is that you? I thought about the mountaintop experience, right? Elijah had been on the mountaintop, had this great, powerful moment and experience. And some of you are like that. You're like, you're like living on the mountaintop right now, right? But we know that oftentimes when we're on the mountaintop, that's when we're the most vulnerable in our lives too. Like we drop our guard and we get attacked by the enemy. Sometimes it comes through another person and whatever. And all of a sudden we're on the mountaintop and we begin to look at outward things. We take our eyes off of God, right? We All of a sudden we're on the mountaintop and we begin to look at outward experiences, outward moments, and we get our eyes on ourselves and we get filled with pride and we begin to tell God, God, this is how you should do things in my life. That's what Jack talked about. And we become spiritually vulnerable. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in the valley. And as Jack said earlier, right, I tell you guys this all the time, things grow best in the valley, not on the mountaintop. Things grow the best in the valley. And some of you are finding yourselves in the valley this morning. And you're kind of like Elijah, like, God, I just want to quit. I've had enough. God, I've had enough. I'm done. Some of you are in the valley this morning. And Jack talked about that last season where God doesn't rebuke us when we're in the valley, but he wants to come and refresh us and reveal himself to us and to restore and renew if you just won't quit. And it ties back into those first four points again. See, this is thousands of years ago, the story, but it applies to our lives here this morning today. How are your ears this morning? Where are you in this story? What is God saying to you? It's weird. Like God, the creator of this universe, is here and he wants to speak to me this morning. I know Jack prayed, but I want to pray for you again. Jesus, I thank, you, I thank you so much for my friends that are here this morning, my brothers and sisters, and for those that are watching online and those that will listen to this at some other point in time. God, you want to speak to us. So help us ask those questions this morning. Would you reveal yourself to us this morning? God, we thank you that you want to give us a new beginning. Speak to our hearts this morning, we pray. Jesus' name.